Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Um, oh, it's nice to have Anth back, isn't it? So, I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, just over this last, uh, you know, this first Saturday was away, and then the following Wednesday, and doing all the the prep for the ministries. I'll tell you what, I was glad that he does most of it, and not me. It's a lot of work, I tell you. Um, we're going to try and tackle some of the questions that have been asked. Um, if you're question doesn't get reached tonight I apologize but in all honesty some of the questions that have been asked are actually a whole evening in themselves you know what I mean we'd have to be you know to cover it properly we'd have to really do a lot of uh, research we can answer them generally but to do a really good job we would have to take more time but we're going to try um, uh, let me say at this point in, by no means, as any of the sessions that we've done over these last four weeks, uh, being that we are telling you that certain things are solid and this is accurate and what we want you to believe. What is meant to happen at the lab is that we are opening up stuff and giving you the opportunity to listen and go away and have a think about things so I don't want anybody to say oh Chris said that this is what we now believe I haven't said that at all what I tried to do with this is actually give you an idea remember we started this whole thing by saying what is the bible you know what is it and how did it become what it's become and we are able to say okay we can look at it and read it in a particular way now we have more information about what the sources are and what their agendas were. And it just gives you a little bit more information, right? That doesn't mean we've um, crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's by any means. We've got a lot more work to do. But I hope you've enjoyed the process. I hope, I hope it hasn't freaked you out too much. Um, and some of the questions that have, have come up are, are obviously, um, well, I would say because of the, the things we've talked about. Now, um, Ant's a bit jet-lagged, so if he starts talking in another language, yeah, I'll be, yeah. If he starts talking rubbish, we'll sit him down and we'll send you all home. And I'll get up and I'll talk more rubbish and then we'll be all right. Um, but he, he decided that he was going to be the one who... Uh, basically led this tonight and he said I could contribute if I wanted oh that's nice isn't it so that's what we're going to do um like I say some of the uh questions y you'll only get a little bit of an answer to because in themselves they're a whole evening of uh talking uh you know co coverage but hope you've enjoyed it so far hope you've at least been um inspired 
Because nowadays, because people don't sort of do their own research and, and read and, and whatnot, um, you know, we can end up in a place where we just swallow a very basic understanding and then we're wondering why certain things don't make sense and there are reasons for that. So, without further ado, Anth, you come and take and cover whatever you want to and um, if there's, again, tonight, if there are questions that come from the questions, please write them down because we're going to do our best to, to keep covering. Is that all right? And I just want to say thank you for being so lovely, loyal and keeping coming. It's very, very kind of you all and, uh, you know, very grateful for your support. Come on then, Anth. Woohoo! No, use this. Bless you. It's good to be back, tired or not. But, uh, okay, a couple of things let's clear up at the beginning. Um, what we're doing is not everybody's cup of tea. Um, but we can tend to be very superficial in the context of our faith. So comments like, well, you know, can't we all just love Jesus? Well, yeah, people have said that for generations, but there's all kinds of branches of then, what do you mean by love and what do you mean by Jesus and what do you mean by us all? So those are oversimplistic ideas of, um, of what we're involved in, which is, is simple enough for a child to grasp, because Jesus said, you know, unless you receive this as a little child, which means there's a simplicity to this. But, but Paul also talks about maturity and um, coming to a situation where we can actually handle ourselves in, in what, to some degree, is a hostile world and, um, and be equipped enough, actually, not just to, not to fend off argument, because that's not what this is all about, but actually to engage conversation with people from all streams, from all faiths, from all backgrounds, with all kinds of viewpoints on the Christian gospel. So, um, um, one of the things that, oh, well, you know, this is all just, you know, why, why do we need to know all this stuff? Well, I could argue you don't need to know all this stuff. Um, but if you think about it, some of our reasons for wanting to excuse ourselves from the discipline of learning are really silly. So, you know, for example, if I went to an um, accountancy firm and said, I'd really like to have a job, why? Because I like numbers. You know, that's a very shallow, well, are you any good with numbers? What do you know about numbers? What do you know about spreadsheets? Like James, who's, you know, just first year in his law degree at York University. Well, you know, why do you want to come to university? Well, I've watched a lot of programs on the TV about police and lawyers, and I thought I'd like to have a go. So, so do you see what I'm saying? That, that we can be so shallow in trying to look clever in our reasons for, well, it's not really important to me. This is important to all of us. Now, I also appreciate that not all of us have the same um, academic mental capacity to grasp everything. That's okay, that's okay. And uh, the other thing is that because we all come from such diverse backgrounds, um, what we think we hear 
is not always what we actually hear. Uh, but that's also okay, because that's why we want questions for what, what do we think that we've heard in all of this, uh, so we can clarify it. But, but all of it is important to a degree. Now, I appreciate some of you will never get into big debates and conversations that relate to stuff about Yahwis and Elois and whatever, but if you've got some of this stuff in the background, it will help you to have, first of all, a much more compassionate um, position in conversation, because, you know, we were raised, you know, I'm like this side, we were raised, right, and some of them there, we were raised, you know, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. So that was about the depth of our conversational argument. What about the Bible? God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, it's the word of God and can't be challenged. Okay, what about all the genocide and murders? Well, God is in control, he knows what he's doing. Now, I would hope that now we've gone this length of the conversation, you realize how silly we sounded uh, and how dogmatic, it was a dogma. We are not moving, this is what we... And we were ill-equipped to, to engage, first of all, our own thinking and, and also the thinking of others. So, so I wanted to say that to help you just, you know, stay on track. You know, some of you will understand all of it, some of you will understand some of it, some of you will understand none of it. Um, but actually, understanding it is not always the, the essential ingredient because um, it's what you actually take into your own spirit. So, illustration I often use for this is, I, I never sit down to lunch thinking, okay, what are the nutritional things that are in this, you know, steak if you're a meat eater, or these vegetables if you're not. You know, exactly how many kilojoules of energy will I get if I eat one mouthful of this carrot? You just don't do that. Um, and for most of us, if you said, what did you have for lunch yesterday? How many of you have to go, hang on a minute, um, let me see, yesterday. That's because we don't, we don't consciously uh, struggle over what is the value that we are receiving from the food that we eat because we know that all we've got to do is eat it and we get the value. So for those of you who think, I don't really understand it all, that does not equate to, therefore, it is not valuable to me. Um, because I've learned over many years that it's more what goes in your spirit than what goes in your head that will make the difference. Because for some of you, this will all go in your head, and all you'll become is more dogmatic and, and obnoxious than, than you ever were before. It's the whole thing of knowledge puffs up, the Bible says. Knowledge puffs up, makes us obnoxious. Know it alls. But what we know in our heart, what goes into our heart, begins to affect how we talk. So you may not be able to repeat what it is that you've heard, but if you let it go in, it will have an impact on, on not only how you feel about the world around you and people you speak to, but also what you have to say to them, you will realize is being shaped by a knowledge that you didn't consciously realize that you'd, you'd taken in. That make, makes sense. So... Um, so this is important, and I know, you know, just for the nature of it, that, that's why we are, that's why we're, we're continuing on this. A um, couple of thoughts on, we are coming to the questions, but it's a couple of thoughts we've got to just, just lay a foundation. Um, what I've just shared with you about the impact of this, um, I, I have experienced firsthand over the last two weeks that I've been in the U.S. in... Um, in Waco and in, and in Ogden and Salt Lake City. Um, 
because things that I have learned and taken on board and, and embraced and thought through have been extremely valuable in, in the conversations that I have had and the teaching that I've been doing uh, with the leaders down there and the people. So, so I know that what I'm saying to you is it, it's a reality that's, that will help all of us to, to move forward with greater maturity. Um, one of the questions that, that I asked before teaching, not all of this stuff, but I was teaching very much the, um, you know, the line between truth and not truth, and uh, talking about a more beautiful gospel. And uh, one of the questions that, that I asked them, which I ask you, how, how many of you have ever seen the sunrise? How many of you watched the sunrise? Just put your hand up. That's actually a lie. Um, However, the description that you give of what it was that you saw is an accurate description, but it's not actually true. So it's possible to describe something accurately as you see it, but for it not to be true. So the reality is that there are movements taking place that you don't even feel, you're not even consciously aware of, which give you the impression that the sun rises. So the earth is turning on its axis and we are flying around the sun at an incredible rate of knots, yet we are not consciously at this moment aware of any of that movement. But it's massive movement, it's happening all the time, but we're not conscious of it. So our descriptions only reflect the images that are thrown up by the underlying movements that are going on, but our reflection, though true, may not actually be correct. So it's an accurate, an accurate description of what we see, but it's not actually the truth of what we're seeing. So again, I use that to emphasize that what we are trying to look at is, what are the inner movements, what are the inner workings? What are the things that are happening in, in spirit and in truth that Jesus talked about? These things are spirit and truth. What's happening in spirit and truth that is a constant movement like the earth flying through the, through the universe around the sun, like us turning on our axis that we're not necessarily consciously aware of, but it's that movement that produces the phenomenon that we witness that then we can be guilty of describing accurately, but not necessarily truthfully. Does that make sense? I think it's a great illustration. So a lot of what we see in scripture is an accurate description according to those who were seeing it of what they thought they were observing, but it wasn't necessarily true. Now that doesn't make the Bible untrue. What it does is it makes you have to realize that when we critically observe something and reflect what it is that we are seeing, there may be behind that a greater truth that if we are not looking for it, we don't become aware of. So we live in the superficiality of only what it is that we see. Now here's what the Apostle Paul says, that we live by faith and not by what? Sight. Why does he say that? Because if we only live by sight, therefore what we see, the words on the pages of a Bible, 
or what we see was the image reflected by some of those who wrote the Bible, if we only live by sight, Paul says we never get an appreciation of what is truthfully going on. But when we live by faith, we go past that and it allows us to embrace these movements, these wonderful movements that are going on all the time, um, that actually they are the God bit, you know, The whole argument, is God in control, is God involved, whatever. The truth is there is a God bit in our world. Now, you say, which God is that? El, is that Yahweh? Well, I'll talk about that in a moment. But that's going on, okay? So, So if that is the case, then we have to approach um, this book, the Bible, we have to approach it through the eye of faith not just through the eye of sight. So what we witness happening so often in the things that Chris has addressed, and I talked a little, little bit about that um, a couple of weeks ago and we talked about the God of, the, God of uh, the Old Testament, the God of Jesus. What we are so often encountering in the written text of the Bible is what we're seeing, the sight bit, okay? The sight bit. But we don't live by sight, we live by faith. So the issue is in every... In every story, in every account written in the Bible, there is an eye of faith that when you look at that story will not cause the authority of written scripture, let's call it that. We've talked about it, so I'm not, you know, I'm not going into the finer detail of that. It will not disturb the authority of it. It will just allow what is happening behind the obvious to become the norm of our experience, okay? Because the thing I wanted to say tonight, particularly about this, I don't have any pens, so I can't. Um, Have you got them there? Right. Um, I haven't got a yellow, and yellow looks stupid on these, so I'm gonna use a, I'm gonna use a, I've done a red, so let's do a different color. Shall we have, how about a green? So through all of this from, uh, I'm going to put pre-Genesis, okay? Pre-Genesis, right? So the reason I say that is because, because again, with, with the eye of sight at Scripture, Genesis is the beginning. But Genesis is not the beginning. It's only the beginning of that beginning, okay? But there are beginnings that, begin before Genesis. So one of the things we looked at when we looked at um, uh, the, um, that verse in Revelation, Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the, the earth. Remember the illustration we used that when you look at the stars, you're not seeing what you think you see. You're, depending on how many light years away that star is, um, which is easier to grasp for a younger generation because you've been raised with much more understanding of, um, of, of physics and, and some, of the, you know, some of the nuclear physics and all that stuff that goes on. But, but what we talked about was if a star is 100 light years away, when I go out there and look tonight, I'm seeing something that occurred 100 years ago. It's, it's weird, isn't it? Just absolutely weird, but true. So my description would be, I can see that star now. The truth is, no, you can't. 
what you're seeing happened 100 years ago. So Jesus, Jesus being the lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth, is a, is a, it is a very easy principle to prove in the context of even, even um, physics and science. Okay? So, so we've got pre-Genesis, which means everything before we start to be brought in onto the... In, onto the act. And you know, I said to you before when we talked about Genesis that Genesis is not meant to be a, a, a science manual or a history book. The point of Genesis is not to scientifically prove how things came into being. We talked about that. It, it's a wonderful process of from one day to seven, we have everything that's disordered and dark and broken brought back into order and it works, and God looks and says, I like this, this is really very, very good. Um, I, I was asked to talk to a, uh, a group of um, people in recovery, it's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? On uh, Sunday morning in, in Ogden at Genesis Project. And these are all various people who, you know, some of them are still in jail and being brought in on a... A Sunday, others of them are in hostels, you know, for recovery from all kinds of addictions, alcohol and, and, and drugs particularly. Um, but from all that we've understood, I was able to talk to them about, about Genesis being a process. And that uh, God started with brokenness and darkness and chaos. And uh, it wasn't all fixed in one day. But what did happen, God said, let there be light. And the light allowed us to see things as they really were. And from that point of revelation, of honestly seeing things as they were, we day by day have additions coming that bring us to the place where we say it's finished, it's complete, it's done. And uh, that really is part of the, the wonderful story of, of, of the Bible when we look beyond trying to classify it as we're going to prove the earth was made in six days and it's only 6,000 years old. and Just, just the wrong, it, 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 it's the right answer to some, but it's the right answer to the wrong question. So we can be very guilty, in, particularly in, in Christianity, of, of giving what right answers the sun's rising to the wrong question. What lies behind it is the question, not or the sun rose. So... The reason I said pre-Genesis um, is because I, I, I want to show you something that applies to all that we're doing. And it, it, it's kind of a little bit of a, an answer to the question of can we trust the Bible? If, if what we're exposing is that things that were written may not necessarily be exactly what they were written to be, how do we trust that the, the old thing you know, Chris's mum used to say, and some of you have wrestled with that. Um, well, if, we, if, if any part of it's wrong, it's all wrong. Well, that's just silly, isn't it? You know. Um, so, pre-Genesis to, you know, to, um, to let, I'm going to call, what I'll call it down here. Because it used to be, used to be heaven and hell, isn't it? Okay, so I'm going to put this phrase down here. Some of you won't see it, so what I've put down there is the restoration of all things. Um, why wouldn't God want to work with us to fix things? 
Why, why would God want to write it off to a, a bad day and a bad deal and a bad job, which, which a lot of our heaven-hell-based doctrine was about? Well, he couldn't fix it, so what he did was say, well, we'll just destroy that and we'll, and we'll have heaven and hell and forget that project, which, which in essence then would mean that God's great, great project of the creation of humanity and the world, he deems to be a failure and is just waiting for the time in which he can say, well, let's just, let's just slide that up. Let's just, let's just shove that into the background so nobody ever remembers that failed. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? That cannot be the end of all things. So even when we hit Genesis, from pre-Genesis, the great story is the restoration of all things. It's broken, it's dark, it's chaotic. Now, however you define that in specific terms is irrelevant because the, 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 the Bible itself doesn't describe that in specific terms. It just says all you need to know, it was dark, it was chaotic, it was formless, it was empty, but we see a restoration, a wonderful restoration. So why wouldn't that still be the heart of God, the restoration of all things? Now, so what does that look like? I'm not sure. Um, but I don't think it looks like the earth being completely destroyed and everybody out of here and let's forget that project. I don't think it looks like that. I think it looks like something more beautiful and bigger and better. And, and, and so we are invited to participate in the restoration of all things. Now, how long that takes, I don't know. Um, and of course, all the, the stuff that goes with that. But the reason I said all that is, is this, because in between these two things, we have, we have a story, okay? Let's call it a story. Um, and much of that story we, we get from what Chris particularly talked about, the books. Books that were not necessarily written when the thing occurred, many of them written after the thing occurred, but books that have been compiled from people trying to set down in a communicable form what it was that they have heard or witnessed or experienced or been told somebody else experienced, but trying to pass on what in essence initially was an oral tradition um, into a, a written tradition. Now, each of them has problems. You know, oral traditions can potentially become Chinese whispers. You know, well, you know, we, uh, we went out, we got ambushed by five people, and we killed two and three ran away. And then that becomes, we got ambushed by 50,000 people, and we killed 2,000 and put 3,000 to flight. You see, so... All we've done is just dropped a few knots in there, you know, make the story a little bit more effective. So oral tradition can do that. And I think sometimes in the Bible, um, when you look at the actual population back then of these little nomadic tribes uh, and some of the numbers that are thrown around, you think, you know, that's a my dad's bigger than your dad argument, you know. Um, but it's actually not a problem. It's not a problem because once you understand it in the context of what we talked about, the sunrise and the inner workings and what we describe, what we see and what that becomes, it's okay. So, of course, then 
that's one of the weaknesses of oral tradition. Now, you kind of hope within oral tradition that the main elements of the story come through. And I think, by and large, that happens, okay? But with all the things that go along with oral tradition. Because when you then convert that to a, a written tradition, that creates a different kind of problem, which is then you get rigidity because now it's written down. A phrase that we use, if you can see, I want to see it in black and white. Well, that's fine, but what if the black and white is, is rigidly saying what, what is written, but actually not necessarily accurate? You've seen it in black and white, but now it's become rigid. So when we go to the written tradition, yeah, you're back to the closed canon. So priestly writers and lawmakers all want to get things written, but then once it's written, there's no departure from that. There's no mystery. There's no fluidity. We've now said, no, this, this is definitely how it was. So we, we have to wrestle and contend with the fact that we are subject to both of those elements. Working in, in, in our holy book, the scriptures, the Biblia, the books, um, that, that for some, therefore, might say, well, you can't trust the Bible. That's where I beg to differ and why I am writing this here. So in the story, all those elements are taking place. So, for example, um, in one of the questions that was asked was about uh, what about the flood? What about the flood? Uh, well, okay, a couple of things about that. First of all, I'm just using this as an example and partly answering it, but not fully, because, you know, to some degree, to spend an evening talking about the elements surrounding the flood would be a good exercise, because there are lots of factors. So we may, we may just do that, so please allow me just to generalize. Um, the flood narrative is not unique to the Bible. Um, it is also mentioned in Babylonian literature. It is also mentioned in Sumerian literature. And what was the big one? I forgot what the big one is. The, uh, I'm not repeating that. No. I'm not even attempting that, that word. The, yeah, it's 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 the other one I was looking for, the one that's on the something tablets. The mm -mm. no, it's not that. That's not. It'll come to me in a moment. Anyway, point is, there are several versions of of the flood within the ancient cultures, not only around the time when we have the biblical version of the flood, but but there's actually at least one that is more ancient than a. Epic of Gilgamesh is what I was looking for, which was found on the cuneiform. It was cuneiform writing on... That's it. We got there. So it's called the, the Epic. It's Epic, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which, which predates um, our record of the flood in Genesis was recording a flood. Now you say, well, so which one's right? Well, why, why does he have to be a which one? The point is that ancient culture records very definitely and without a shadow of a doubt um, the, the, the historicity of a great flood or great floods with an S. Now, yeah, 
Now, what I'm trying to show you in this is that if, if, we, if I were now to tell you the whole earth was flooded, uh, you'd think, stupid. Because we now have a conscious awareness of the whole earth. So the whole world to us is not York and as far as we can walk, you know, into the Vale of York and maybe into Lancashire, you know, where back in those days, if the Vale of York was flooded, to us we would have said the whole world was flooded. The whole world was flooded. There was a deluge. It was terrible. So, so you have to put all of these in the context of the culture and say, was the account of the flood true? Yes. Did it necessarily cover the whole earth until it was above the mountains? Not necessarily. Um, could that have happened? Well, I guess so. I can't tell you that it definitely didn't. Um, but then the question would be, is that the point or is that the sunrise? Well, we saw a great flood. Well, what's all the workings going on around that? Which is why you can't just grab hold of the flood story in Genesis and say, well, people were wicked, God destroyed people, Noah built an ark, only eight were saved, and then he set him down and we all, you know, who were the people that were destroyed if people were destroyed? And if they were destroyed, why were they destroyed? And what kind of a case can we put up for the God that we're talking about who is good and kind doing that? Was it legitimate because we were dealing with a different order of creation than humanity? You know, all those kind of questions begin to come into this. And uh, is, this, is the story bigger than the story? Is, is the point as trying to prove Mr. Noah built an ark, the people thought it such a lark, as we were taught in Sunday school. Um, you know, the animals went in two by two, the whatever and the sheep and the kangaroo. and That's right, all were safely gathered in before that dreadful, yeah. Down came the rain in torrents and all that. Okay. What's interesting, just picking up on, on particularly Chris's subject matter, is now I'm not going to run you through it all because, you know, again, we're, we're dealing with some of the questions, but, but when you read the account in, in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7, um, you find that all th three groups, the Elohists, the priestly writers, and the Yahwehs, all had a bit of a chip at this. So, so you've even got um, you've even got within that um, that you you have a separation of verses. So so you've got like Genesis seven eleven is from the priestly source, but Genesis seven twelve is put in by the Yahwehs. So they've all had a little pop at this. And again, I'm not here to break that story down, but it's like there is difference between, between one group said the, the fountains of the deep opened up and the other group said, no, the heavens opened and it poured down. And one said it was, it was for this long and the other said, no, actually it was for this long, which we often pass over. But what it is, it's like you imagine you come to it and you, you're reading like about the floodgates of the deep opened up. And, um, and, then, and then you come as a Yahwist and say, okay, we'll just add in there, and the windows of the heavens were opened. 
and it rains. So they're pitching in all little bits that actually kind of support their perspective of what they want the story to say. Now, one of the reasons I'm saying all this is because uh, the impact of researching some of this stuff, and of course we've had conversation going back long beyond three weeks about this stuff. I mean, we're, we're, we're going back into years. Is that it has not weakened my faith, it's strengthened it. And it has not put me off the Bible, it has drawn me to the Bible. Uh, it has not made me suspicious of truth and the, and the transportation of truth. It has made me confident of the process of the transportation of truth because in looking at it in reality and saying, do you know what, there's so much fingers in the pie here and, well, you know, you said it's the fountains of the deep, we're going to say it's the rain from above and all this stuff going on that, that within all those to then realize that in that there is something that, that, this is what I wanted to write here, let's call it a golden, which is why I wanted yellow but it doesn't show up very well. A golden thread. No, scarlet's too. That's that's got another implication. I'm going with golden. I like golden. <clears throat> what I mean by the golden thread is that is that if you think that reading scripture is a lot like looking at the sunrise and saying what you see. The golden thread is the movements that are going on behind the concept and description of what we think it was that we saw. So what I'm discovering more and more is that this golden thread runs all the way through all that, and I will call some of it nonsense, and, and it runs through the nonsense of me and Chris and Jenny and Joel and Bob Nichols and whoever, of, of all the possibility that at times we have come up with nonsense. And in essence, I would look back and say, I wouldn't want you to go back and listen to things that I preached necessarily 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, because in there, I was describing what it was that I saw, just like the sunrise, and giving an accurate account of what I saw, which is why I don't consider myself hypocritical. Oh, well, how could you do that? Because it was an accurate description. But the more we become aware of the movements, let's call it the movements of the spirit, the movements of faith, the movements of the God of heaven, the more we become conscious of this wonderful golden thread that begins to give us a greater revelation of Christ in it all. So Christ and Jesus are not, are not interruptions in time and space down here. Okay? Jesus and Christ, and let's use the other words, the word which was in the beginning, have been in the flow all the way through here. I'll just give you one example because I want to, I wanna, you know, just touch on some of these these questions here. One example occurs about here, and it's um, this guy called David. Um, <clears throat> several things about David's life, which you couldn't, if you were a Eloist, Deuteronomist, 
uh, Yahwist or priestly writer you could not accept, okay? For example, David writes this in the Psalms. After he's, right, he's an adulterer, okay? There's no doubt about it. He is. He, he, he finally fesses up to it. And uh, the penalty under all of those systems is that he can't be left alive. He has to die. He has to die for his sin. And now he certainly can't be king. He's not qualified to be king. When you throw into that as well, um, two things. One, that he had the woman's husband killed. It was basically, we would term it today as a contract killing. I don't want to get my hands dirty, so I have the power to put him on the front line of the battle and he'll be killed. Well, who's responsible for that? David was. And by all intention, um, you know, uh, Bathsheba's husband was in terms of humanity, an extremely honorable guy. And, and how it demonstrates that, it says that David sent for him from the battle, said, come back, and uh, go home for a few days. Why? David's thinking, he'll go home for a few days, he's been away a while, he'll sleep with his wife, she'll, she'll then hide the pregnancy around the fact that I brought him home, so oh, it's him being... But he was so honorable, he said, how can I come home in the comforts of my home? How can I sleep in my wife's bed when my brothers are out there having to fight a battle? So he didn't do it because David's like... So he goes back to the battle. So David arranges, put him on the front line of the battle. Poor guy gets killed. Message comes back. David's thinking... Problem over. However, that under the systems of these other understandings of God and the legalities and the law and the writers meant that he should, be, he should die for that. He should die for his adultery. Then there was another situation where David blatantly, in the understanding of all of those systems, disobeyed God and counted his fighting troops. All of those would have disqualified him from being king and put a death sentence on his head. But David remains king, and he writes these words in the Psalms. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, against whom the Lord will never count iniquity against him. That, under any of those four systems that Chris has talked about, is impossible. None of those preach, teach, embrace, or believe in that system. It's not possible that you can have your sins forgiven and your iniquities never counted against you, that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far your transgression will be removed, is impossible under any of those systems. So this guy, David, is living in an understanding and a revelation that is inside this system, but not of this system. I remember Jesus said one day, you are in the world, but not of the world. In the system, but not of the system. David was in the system that was driven by all of these understandings, but he was not of that system because he understood the golden thread. The golden thread, we understand as what John wrote about the Word who was in the beginning with God. The Word who is made flesh, who shows the glory of the Father. The one we know of Jesus, born of the Virgin, who becomes Christ the Anointed. Okay, all of that is, is the revelation of this golden thread, which you can pick up 
pre-Genesis, you can pick it up in Genesis, and you can follow it all the way through Scripture, even into the, some of the nonsense of New Testament, which we'll, we'll spend some time talking about on another night. Another significant thing of David was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant that was symbolic of the, the, the manifest presence of God with the people. Now, what had happened here is this had been taken, and in essence, I, I guess you could call it idolatry. There's lots of issues about that and this thing called the mercy seat and all that. Too big a discussion for tonight. But in the context of all this, you know, and remember Yahweh couldn't even say the name of God, it was too holy. The Ark of the Covenant was like, it was a thing that you couldn't touch, you mustn't go near it. You, and it was kept within their system, it was kept, there was the outer court of, a, of what was first the, the tabernacle, the tent worship place, then the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies. This ark thing was in the Holy of Holies because you couldn't, you couldn't see it, you couldn't touch it, you couldn't go to it. The high priest went in there one time a year to offer blood for the sins of the people. That's also another story, something that we have come to know as atonement. Okay. Point is, don't go near it, don't touch it. Um, it's, it's so holy you can't approach it because this represents God. So David, this, this ark has been captured by, by their enemies. When David brings it back, he doesn't restore it to that, that place that this would demand in this holy of holies. He erects a tent himself in Jerusalem, in, in what we know as Mount Zion, and um, he puts it in there, which means that it is accessible to all people. So suddenly now, God who is inaccessible because of systems becomes totally accessible because he has made himself accessible. David understood God has made himself accessible and mercy flows from him just like it has to me. Mercy flows to everybody who will come and encounter what is in this presence, because he saw in it a presence, word made flesh, word made flesh. And what he did was instead of having darkness and um, altars and fire and miserable priests going about their duty, you know, having to kill two animals an hour or whatever it was, just to meet the flipping conditions, David does the opposite. He appoints worshippers and musicians. And 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he surrounds this presence with music, with worship, with singing. Because David has caught something that you could never understand by just reading the record that the Elohist, the Deuteronomist, the Yahwist, the priestly writers had done. You could never grasp this just by taking, because what they're telling you is the sun rose. But what David's saying is, no, there are movements and workings going on here that are much greater and bigger, that yes, we witness it in certain ways, but I'm getting to the source of what it is that we witness. So David's not describing an event, he's describing the movement, the source. Okay, Sins forgiven, open access to the presence of who they said was a holy God, but now he's not so holy that you can't come near him because David understands. Meanwhile, at the same time, these people, the priests, 
influenced by all this thinking, are on a different mountain, carrying on the way they've always carried on, making the sacrifices they'd always made, keeping private everything that was supposed to be private and holy and secret, and going through all the motions when the very thing they're supposed to be worshipping, the presence of God, wasn't there anymore. Because David's hijacked that and given it back to the people. So, so, so even in David's time, the religious things going on, all of this stuff, but David separates himself and says, there is a different God. Now, who did he meet? I believe he was talking about the one who we know as the Abba, the Dad of Jesus, the God of Jesus. He's walking in that same revelation. So throughout this process, and again, we, we could go step by step by step, um, there is a golden thread. Now, I'm saying this because um, the question of, of, of you know, uh, if a lot of the Bible is agenda-based and co-opted to say what the writers wanted to be said, how can we trust that we're not doing the same ourselves? We can't. It can be done. And it is done, particularly in something called proof text type preaching, which means preachers who take a verse and say, well, this proves that, doesn't it? You know. Um, but the main issue is that, that, that how do we know that we're not doing the same? How can we safeguard ourselves? We can never totally safeguard ourselves because we're human like they were. But I believe the greatest safeguard is when you're looking for the Christ thread that runs through it all. So we're, pre we're not safe if we start trying to get into all of this and explain why it's okay for God to annihilate a village, men, women, and children, why it's okay for us to have slaves. You know, because like Chris rightly said, when people say, well, how can we really trust the Bible now you said all that? Well, how can we trust the Bible with the abolition of slavery when the Bible still talked about slavery, but we said abolish slavery? I so if we're trying to make sense of all this, the truth is we, we do not, we do not hit the thread. This golden thread that runs through all this, I believe, is what helps us to be able to say, do you know what? Yes, we can do the same of having an agenda, and to some degree we will have an agenda because of where we lean in the context of what we want to accomplish and achieve. But the great salvation in all that is the Christ thread running through it all. So, for me, does this God look like the God of Jesus? Wherever it doesn't, it's a sunrise, but it's not describing the inner workings. Because in all of this, I look at guys like David and say, does that God look like Jesus? And you say, flip, yeah, it really does. Even, I'm not getting into it, Moses at the burning bush in the desert. Does that God look like Jesus? It depends whether you're looking at the sunset or the inner workings. Because in that event where God turns up to Moses, he said something very interesting. Moses said, when they ask me, who sent you, what shall I tell them? And this, this is what was recorded. Tell them, I am. I am has sent you. Now, so what's, what's important about that? Well, now, now the... Now these other people get all of it. The Yahwehs get over that and say, yeah, what God was saying is that Jehovah is my name 
amidst all of these gods of the Elis, Jehovah is my name, and it's the name I'll be remembered for all generations. Let me give you a different twist on it. What if I am is the name by which I am to be remembered through all generations? We just delivered it from this issue of this one nation, one God, supreme being, making you the bee's knees, God, we've just now delivered it to someone who says, I am. Which is fascinating because if you remember how many times Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Do you know what he was saying in cultural terms? He was saying, I am God, and God is the bread of life, and I am the bread of life, so when you see me, you see the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. See, so if you understand this thread and you look beyond the obvious, you realize, heck, when Jesus was saying those statements, he wasn't just saying, I am the light of the world. He was locating us all the way back to Moses taking the shoes off his feet in the desert because he has this encounter with this God who's not the God of the Egyptians, who's unique and special, who says, I am Now, of course, my contention with the polytheistic thing would be he didn't say, we are, or I am one of many. In fact, his literal term was, I am that I am, which is so, which is so in the moment, in the present, singular in time, singular in person, that what I believe we have is this golden thread, this golden thread. Look for the golden thread. Don't get hung up with the other stuff that you have to prove why it was okay for God to say, kill all these people. And you don't have to say, prove why, well, you know, if, if we contend with that, you know, aren't we going against the Bible? No, we're actually reading the Bible for what it is. And in entering into what it is, we're saying there are movements that we're not aware of, but by faith you understand those movements. So that's why Paul in Hebrews says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. How do you understand that? The worlds were framed by the word of God. By faith, he's saying, we can see movement and working beyond all this. And I'm saying this so that you don't lose confidence in what it is that we have been given, but you realize that within what has been given, there is a, there is a golden thread that, that runs all the way through it. So, um, let me come to that, the last question on here, which I'm kind of just picking them out as we go. If all the other gods were real, where are they now? Uh, Chris and I might answer this differently because we're at different points on our journey, which is okay, and I'm happy to say that. I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, we embrace where we are in the conversation because, um, I mean, in, in honor of Chris, uh, if it weren't for her boldness in, in some of this research and questioning and what she's prepared to embrace, bring to the table, um, I wouldn't be half as far on as I am now in the process of where I am. But in this Christ thread, it causes me to come to certain conclusions because of the Christ thread. Not because of the analytical thinking of the details surrounding it, because you can analyze, sit and analyze the sunrise. Yep, 
there it goes, the colours are changing. I analytically can see the sun is rising. It still doesn't make it any more right. The inner workings, I believe, therefore, are this, that you know, if all the other gods were real, remember Chris talked about the Elois and, uh, and uh, the Yahwists also, seeming to suggest that um, there, were, there was a pantheon of gods, is the word that was used. Where do I sit? It's my personal, personal stand on this. Um, if all the other gods were real, where are they now? My personal thing would be they're not. Um, therefore, where they have always been is where they are now. Which is nowhere, because they're not. Where they've always been, this is my view, where that pantheon of gods has always been is in the mind and culture of people wrestling with the understanding of the divine, the spiritual, the world, creation, etc., etc., etc. So the pantheon of gods, in my view, existed not in reality that God sits among gods, because again, remember, that's the sunrise being written. What do you think you see? Well, we think we see this. But I think those pantheon of gods were within the mind and within the culture of the people who were wrestling with these things to understand the divine and understand spirit and understand the world and understand the creation. So, so I might have concluded some of the conclusions some of these people concluded if I lived back then with the information that they were giving me. But within all this, what I would still argue is those who had the Christ thread didn't think like these people. Those who had the Christ thread saw the Abba of Jesus as clear as we think we see the Abba of Jesus from this physical revelation here. They saw it. They saw his day and they were glad about that day because they were seeing something else. So we could, we could, hit, we could hit Adam before this particular incident that some call the fall, we could hit Moses, we could hit David, we could hit Abraham. So many characters in here that we can hit who get a, a glimpse of this Christ thread that is running through that unlocks the truth that is within this. Just because they're Elohist, Deuteronomists, Yahwists and priestly writers doesn't mean that therefore nothing that they wrote was truth. It's just how much does that truth get surrounded by and wrapped in all kind of that's the good word what is being culturally borrowed well we know there is a God uh, and then we, we've kind of we, 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 we've got this stuff about Egyptians and Mesopotamians and, and Sumerians and, and, and all of a sudden that's affecting that oh well we think God would be like this and then when you have an agenda of we're a tiny little nation and, and remember this when you're looking at all this, um, um, that, that position and possession was everything. How much land you held and what your position was in the wider culture were everything. So Israel, little nation, need possession, land, and need position. Our God's bigger than your God. We're special. God said that we're special. We're more special than you. You mess with us, you mess with God. So where in all of that, there might be some truth because a bit like you mess with my kids, you mess with me. Um, they had taken it to an extent that was now nationalism 
right? It had become a nationalistic thing within the culture that all of this is running, but within it, the golden thread is there for, for us to find and us to see. So that, that's, my, that's, my, uh, that's my view of, of that, okay? Uh, let me see. How can the reports of Jesus as reflected of the Father have basis in truth? Um, again, take this thread. One thing you notice about all the writings of Jesus that he did not come upholding, promoting, or supporting existing views of God and Israel's role in the great scheme of things. Jesus didn't come saying, you are the people, and I'm one of you, we are the people, he didn't come promoting existing views of God. So he didn't come promoting Yahweh or El or Elohim. You won't read the names of Elohim, uh, you know, and El Shaddai and all those in the New Testament. They're not there because Jesus transitioned us to say, no, all this was always and only ever about daddy, about father. And the whole Genesis narrative with Adam and Eve was based in the root that God was the father of Adam. Now, however you see that, whether you think he was the only person, all that stuff matters not. What matters is that the image painted is that God was the father of Adam. Otherwise, he couldn't say to him, when he brought Eve out of Adam, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, the two will be one flesh, as a projector revelation because in essence, Adam had no father unless God was his father. So how did Adam see God before his departure from, from living in life and measuring by good and evil, he saw God as father. God was his father. That's why they walked together in the garden in the cool of the evening. They're images of relationship. So, so, so in that whole thing, Jesus was not supporting what the agenda thing going on in the middle of here. Not supporting any of the Old Testament writers' agendas, but reintroducing us to the one present in the beginning in the creation story. Uh, how did fighting to get into the promised land come in? All the reasons we've already discussed and explained. What? Yeah. No, that is the question. How did fighting to get into the promised land come in? My answer was, all the reasons already discussed and explained. That's why the fighting was there. Okay, so I'm just kind of clipping through these before if Chris has then got anything to say. Um, the, okay, what, what is known about Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and did they have any agenda in the writings of the three Gospels? Uh, that's a question bigger than two or three minutes and it's a question I'd like us to move on to because I'd like to talk some about how these principles we've talked about here start showing up right from the very beginning of the New Testament, okay? So, so this is not something that, well, that just ends with the Old Testament, thank God for Jesus. You know, just like in creation, we started and then there was a problem, along comes Jesus and before you know what's happening, the New Testament equivalent of these things is starting to, to sneak in. So, so um, Paul's letters were actually written before the Gospels. So although we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then go into Paul, actually Paul was writing before that. And also what is not really helpful, I guess, in many ways, is that the New Testament is not in chronological order. Uh, 
So Paul's first book was 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, followed by Galatians, of which 1 and 2 Thessalonians, uh, they're weird books. They're a bit strange. Because um, they were the first ones written by Paul, but you can see what he's wrestling with. About, about 20 years before he writes Thessalonians, Jesus has ascended into heaven from the mountain outside Jerusalem. And the whole debate is, is he coming back now? Is he coming back soon? What does soon mean? When will he come back? When he comes back? How's he going to come back and who's coming with him? So Thessalonians is Paul trying to get to grips with that whole argument. It's actually got nothing to do with what we then translated it to, some trumpet, some rapture, end of the age. He's trying to wrestle with what's been left with. Jesus has gone. He said he's coming back. Is he coming back now? When is he coming back? What does it look like? But then he launches into some proper stuff, um, which is his first book, which is the book of Galatians. And we looked a little bit at, at that for a few minutes last time I talked, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on that another time. The reason I'm, I'm saying this is that the Gospels weren't really um, composed necessarily or written physically by Matthew, Mark, Luke. Um, they... they use a, a common root source and they make commons, it comments, it seems, from a common root source. Each has a little distinctiveness to its, its own writings, but I think they're things we can talk about as we extend our conversation um, to help you that each one of them writes from a different viewpoint. So if you imagine Matthew looks from here and Mark's here and Luke's here, they have differences because they're coming from a different view and culturally where they are written. One's being written in Turkey, the other one's being written in Antioch in Syria. So again, we've got... The one thing I want to say about that is, is the book of John. Um, John. John was the last writer of the New Testament stuff. So he wrote... Well, I say he wrote. We, when we think he wrote, he actually wrote with his... He might not have done, but the writings that are attributed to him are connected with what John wanted to be written, or what John said, but may have been written by a ghostwriter. Do you understand? Doesn't, again, it does not devalue it, um, because you're looking for, it's not, well, did John actually write the book of John? It's is the golden thread in there. So, um, John, John writes his stuff, his gospel... And uh, definitely first John the Epistle, second and third, some people don't think was John, but that's by the by. And Revelation, we heard. Strange. Brilliant, but strange. Um, the thing about John is that he, he was a character alive with Jesus. Okay? He's the disciple, they believe, who laid his head upon Jesus at the... The Last Supper. So he's, he's, he's the one of the gospel writers who probably has the greatest authenticity in his personal connection with Jesus the Christ. But what I like is he waits to be almost the last to write his book. Why is it? Because I think he's clever. I think he's, he's watching. He's watching and he's listening. And then when he, when he pitches into the debate, it, it, it's really phenomenal because it's golden thread stuff, okay? He pitches in the debate in his, his gospel. 
Let me put it this way, he says. In the beginning was the Word. So he's taking us all the way back here. And the Word was with God. Which God? Not, not these gods invented of culture and borrowed from other societies, but the Abba of Jesus. The Word was with him in the beginning. The Word was one with him, and the Word was made flesh and lived among us. We have Word made flesh, incarnation being revealed. John writing all this stuff. And then, of course, when you come to John's epistle about 95, somewhere around there, 95, 98 AD, John, again, is doing it. He says, okay, here's the deal. Having looked at everything, thought about everything, let me give you one assessment. Here's my conclusion. God is love. Right? So he's taking all this stuff and he's taken all the early years of what is happening after Christ and said, here's what I think you need to know. God is love. And the golden thread which runs through Jesus is that God is love. And if you now take that and slide that into here, you cannot interpret this outside of a revelation of true love that gives itself, that redeems, that restores, that puts right. You can't reconcile it with genocide. You can't reconcile it with murder. You can't reconcile it with, with blatant land possession. You can't reconcile it. So John's really saying, so don't. Look into the story and find within the story, ah, but in all this nonsense we discovered that God is love. If David discovered one thing in his life, he discovered this. God is love. He's accessible. He's available. He's forgiving. He's kind. And he's my dad. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's what John summarizes in his gospel. So, so right, I think that's enough from, from me. We've more or less dealt with that. And that's the thing I want to leave you with because... I don't want you, first of all, nod as Chris, worried about, oh, well, is the many gods now? We're actually preaching there's loads of gods, and then we have to find which god and which god's doing what, and we can't trust the Bible. No, I believe there's the Abba of Jesus, the Dad of Jesus. Maybe Dad's a better word for today's culture. The Dad of Jesus, that's what Abba means. There's the Dad of Jesus, and there's this thread that runs through all of this, helping us to come to that revelation so that we meet the dad who was Jesus' dad, and in meeting that dad, what flows out of us is love, but not love that, well, we just ought to love Jesus, but love that begins to understand what it's working in, why it's working, and what it's looking to accomplish, which is the restoration of all things. Have you got anything you wish to contribute to that? Is that a reasonable summary? Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there and I think, I think we will continue to talk on this same subject because um, I, I, definitely want to, I definitely want to slide this into, I mean, from my perspective, Chris will also, I, I think, you know, she needs a rest anyway first. But when she's had a rest and he's fancying having another little pop, um, uh, I'd certainly like to slide this into into a perspective of New Testament and how the model is still working there uh, and how Paul's fight becomes within it the fight that we've tried to engage to say, why have you been bewitched? Why have you been had a spell put on you? How come you're trying to make this thing that Jesus brought to, to, to work with this? How come you're wanting to bolt this onto that? Because Paul's basic word is you can't. And you mustn't. 
And that's where the word of grace really explodes and comes out. So I bless you in Jesus' name, and we're done. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.